0: Next hour, on most of these the same frequencies. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the program. Today we are going to talk about a rather serious topic, the future. This is Cracking the Code with Sadir Ispahani. In this episode, TV producer Chantal Ricards, chief executive of the British Academy of Film and TV Arts in Los Angeles. She started life in a middle-class family in rural England. Generosity was instilled
1: in me quite young, looking after other people and not putting oneself first.
0: Her career path as a TV producer started with running school plays. That allowed me to think that I could be front and center
1: that I could be in some sort of role of being a central person that made things happen around them.
0: After college, a job selling magazine ads brought valuable experience.
1: Selling sets you up pretty well for nearly anything that you ever do after that point in time.
0: Personal and professional success meant hard work, including the morning her first son was born. He was born at about three o'clock in the morning,
1: but I knew the day before that I was in labor. And I also knew that I had to do three radio interviews at nine o'clock the following morning to help launch the television program that I'd just completed to get the word out. So I had just carried on as if the job had to get done. Yes, I had a gorgeous little baby who was six hours old in the bed next to me, but I knew that I had to do those radio interviews because it was important for the success of the TV show.
0: Now your guide for Cracking the Code, Sudhir Isbahani.
1: Welcome to Cracking the Code, Chantel.
2: It's a pleasure to have you on our show here this morning. Thank you for taking the time.
1: here. So I am absolutely delighted to be taking part. A little nervous, but delighted nonetheless.
2: <laughs> now we'll make sure that this is really as conversational and as, as storytelling it is because I want the world to hear your story. Uh, I'm just so privileged to meet you. and The world is going to meet you. Through this podcast, they've met you many other ways, but uh, for what we do here at Cracking the Code, we're really interested in paying it forward to the next generation of leaders.
1: Well, indeed, and I am delighted equally to meet you too, because you are an inspirational figure, and it's a great honor for me to meet you and to chat. Chattel, you've got
2: you've had an incredible life journey. Allow me to take you back a little to
1: your childhood. A long way back. <laughs> a long way back. You grew up in England. I did. I was born in Lancaster, in Lancashire, in the northwest of Great Britain, beautiful part of the world. I'm the fifth of six children and uh, my parents were both in public service. They both joined the National Health Service when it was created in 1947 in Great Britain, of which we are still enormously proud in our country. And my, my father was a doctor and my mother was a social worker. That's the beginning of the story.
2: So what was it like growing up? You know, I also come from a a large family of siblings, seven, you know, but six siblings. Give us a little feel for what it was like as a a kid growing up and uh, looking up to mom and dad. How did your thinking and your views get painted as you saw your journey unfold?
1: I think what I remember most is is noise. Chaos is too strong a word, but when there are eight people in the house, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people all demanding attention and vying for leadership in some way, because there's always somebody trying to be top dog and getting themselves heard. So I think my my first real understanding was of the sort of glory in a way of having lots of brothers and sisters. I couldn't imagine being an only child now. I would find it I mean, to me, the the concept is anathema. It would feel very peculiar not to have a great happy bunch of siblings, not necessarily all pulling in the same direction. Certainly, we squab- squabbled as children. I think most children squabble. We were quite spread out, so we were spread out over seventeen years. My parents were Catholics. The Catholics clearly of- often had large families, and there were four sisters smashed in between the two boys so in fact my eldest brother was just going off to medical school when my little brother was born but I do very much remember my older brothers and sisters looking after me and me feeling as though that the family unit was all of us mm-hmm. and that mum and dad were very much part of that but the siblings were incredibly strong in that family structure And it was wonderful. I mean, certain times were trickier than others. I can remember the family feeling quite divided when my parents decided to move from the north of England right down to the south coast. Mm. Uh, My father went for a better job. By that stage, he was a consultant pathologist. Mm. And the three, well, in fact, the four older children all felt quite dislocated by the family moving south. Mm. I was only five when we came south. But I do remember leaving friends and, um, you know, leaving my school and having to start all over again. Mm. Uh, and finding that quite tough at the time.
2: And it must have been, you know, it's, it's very interesting in going back to those times. Uh, both mom and dad were working. And, uh, of course, they had to come and take care of all the family duties, working alongside all of you. What were some of the things you know? Of Of course, we'll we'll paint your leadership journey as we come through this conversation. But what were some of the things you would have picked up as a child, observing your siblings, mom, dad, that you'd look back and say, that's something today I actually believe in, because I saw what, what was going on in my own family?
1: I think generosity was instilled in me quite young. Mm. Looking after other people and not putting oneself first, Mm. that was really not deemed to be a good thing. I mean, we were very much made to feel as though other people were more important than us. Mm. And I still believe that. Mm. Uh, I don't put myself first. I never really have done, which is odd in a way when it comes to leadership because you feel as though a leader should actually be Leading from the front, but often I think it's a question of allowing other people to lead, and I think that that generosity sometimes can be really helpful where that's concerned. I think what my parents instilled in me was a sense of integrity, probity, honesty. They liked to be as supportive as they could of the wider family. Mm-hmm. I remember as a child on Christmas Day, my father always wanted to take us into his hospital. To meet families who were in hospital on Christmas Day, mm-hmm. with their fathers or mothers or brothers, their sick family relative, and I think in a way it was to make us feel as lucky as we were. Mm-hmm. And some people might have thought, well, that was quite a cruel thing that on Christmas Day your dad was taking you down to to the hospital to sort of make you feel as though those people were more deserving than you, but it wasn't. Done like that. It was done in a very generous way, with a sort of generosity of spirit. And I think ultimately it was a very good thing to do. And I remember it with great warmth. We used to love actually going mm-hmm. to hospital on Christmas Day and feeling as though we were just helping make other people's day a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And then of course we would go home, and there'd be a you know a, a great big family mash up around the Christmas table. So it didn't take out the whole day; it just took out a little part of the day. But it was important, nonetheless.
2: And I'm sure those those key values are something you treasure very. Right? Very much as you, you know, I can see your leadership style being very uh, quiet and behind the scenes and make things happen. Is that something you would have said early on in childhood you picked up?
1: Well... I'm not always quiet. Um, I can be pretty noisy, and that's one of the things that I think comes from having so many siblings, is that, you know, being number five in the family, I had to sort of fight pretty hard to get myself heard over the noise of the others. And I've always been quite gregarious. I've always liked having a lot of people around me. And I think that's helped with my collaborative style, because we always did things together. There was a real sense of togetherness. And I think if I was to look at my own leadership style it would be very much around collaboration and bringing people along the journey with me Mm -hmm. i'm not really a leader of men in that traditional old-fashioned sense of i have a vision and everybody's got to fall in behind me i'm much more of i probably shouldn't say this i'm much more of a woman about bringing people to a central space and creating harmony in the business environment that works for everybody You're more facilitative in in trying. I think that's what I try and do. I try and look at everybody's point of view. That may be because I'm not entirely sure that my answers are always right. Mm -hmm. I find it better if I can get lots of opinions around the table and then help distill those opinions into a place that feels that that's the right thing to take forward Mm -hmm. that may be different to other people but that's sort of how it feels best for me
2: it's fascinating to hear you uh, you say that because of course you know growing up among so many siblings uh, you learn a little bit about teamwork and how to collaborate and how to not be totally selfish all the time
1: Right. It's so, not to say I wasn't bossy as a child <laughs> I think a lot of people will remember me As a, as a bossy little girl uh-huh. Because I was a great organiser Right, And I loved I loved planning things And I loved organising things And creating things mm. And I think that's probably why I ended up In the creative world Because I was always trying to To shape things and to mould things Whether it was Storytelling Uh, At its basic level or creating things around me, events or projects or school plays, all of those I found incredibly exciting. Hmm. But that's where I would sort of bubble to the surface quite easily and try to get my voice heard a little bit more often. It was a space that I felt very safe in because Hmm. creativity is something that comes relatively naturally to me
2: you know you're coming into this journey uh, through childhood Uh, where did you start thinking and hearing you talk it looks like you really enjoyed naturally organizing events and doing things but where did you start beginning to believe you know you You want to get into some form of leadership. I mean, was there a time in your life, in those early days of schooling and and, uh, university, that you started thinking about leadership?
1: I'm not sure that there was, to be honest. I think I wanted originally to be a doctor. Hmm. And then as I got into my teenage years, it became plainly obvious to everybody around me that I wasn't a scientist. I wasn't a natural scientist. And my science subjects were clearly not as good as my art subjects. Mm. And I actually, that's always been a disappointment for me. If, you know, looking back on, on a sort of fairly lengthy career now, I still massively regret not having to tried harder to be a better scientist and to become a doctor because that was what I wanted. you know by that stage, clearly my my parents were in uh, medicine and, and medical related fields and my eldest brother was a cardiologist, mm-hmm. my next sister was a social worker, my next sister was a nurse and I was desperate to follow oh, the family the family line into medicine. but I wasn't sharp enough I simply wasn't clever enough to be a doctor mm. and I regret that but then I started thinking that I really wanted to pursue something in television I think more than anything else possibly acting possibly television I was probably the lead actress at school I was pretty good at it I think I rather liked the sound of my own voice <laughs> and I think that that allowed me to think that I could be front and center that I could be in some sort of role of being a central person that made things happen around them because I quite liked leading. I liked running the school plays. That's what started to become clear about who I was going to become so, in fact, so this I, was
2: before you even went to university?
1: Yes, so I went to university at eighteen. I left lovely seventeenth century thatch cottage in Dorset in the south of England mm. and went to London University mm-hmm. to read French. My family have some French heritage, and it uh, seemed like a logical thing to do. It was something i was I was good at. All my siblings spoke French, my parents spoke French it came to, be, came to me rather easily. And I had four incredibly good years at the University um, of London and spent my third year teaching in two schools in France. And I was vaguely thinking, did I want to be a teacher at the end of that year? And I taught in two very different schools. One was in the really difficult part of town, the industrial part of town, where my classes were obligatory. And the other was in the very middle class part of town where my classes were anybody could come if they wanted to, but it wasn't forced upon them. And actually, I found it much easier, clearly, teaching the middle class kids who wanted to learn. And I found it incredibly difficult teaching the kids from working class families where they were struggling with their own language, let alone trying to learn a foreign language. Mm-hmm. And I felt that I probably didn't have the resilience that I needed to teach both of those groups equally Mm. and to give as much as they both deserved. Clearly, the people who really needed me were the children in the underserved part of town, where actually they would have been really helped by better education. And the middle-class kids were probably always going to get there on their own. And I felt quite conflicted by that, because I knew it was easier to teach kids who wanted to learn. And I just thought, maybe I'm not quite the right person to be a teacher at that stage. Anyway, I came back, I did my finals, I graduated. But I decided that I was going to go into the media. So really, in my last year at university, I thought... How can I get into the media? And I decided I was going to apply for the BBC. But at that stage, the BBC was really a place where if you'd been to Oxford and Cambridge, you were more likely to be taken on. You had to be in the top tier of... You had to be in the very top tier. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to get there by stealth because I don't think I can go through the front door. So I'm going to plan a few steps along the way and I'll get there through the back door when I've got something to offer that they want. And I thought as a raw graduate, I didn't quite have what they wanted at that stage. So I spent the first two or three years of my career working for a marketing magazine group. Learned a little bit about the marketing industry, but what I was doing was selling advertising space. It was a very good place to start because you have to believe in what you're selling. You have to confront quite scary people. You have to get them to listen to you pretty fast and you have to get results. And selling sets you up pretty well for nearly anything that you ever do after that point in time. So I sold advertising space, but realized that that really wasn't where my heart and soul was. Then I got more and more into organizing events for the company. And then I got headhunted to join the production company that used to create the events then I got headhunted again by a PR company that was in show business. And we looked after people like Michael Caine and Jeremy Irons and wonderful acting talent from around the world. And then I saw a job advertised for a researcher to join a television program where they wanted somebody who had really good contacts in the media with, with celebrities. And by that stage, I got a pretty good filofax as they were in those days right so i applied for a job and came to realize quickly that the job i had i was going for was to work for one of the world's most famous broadcasters sir david frost who famously did the the interview with richard nixon that effectively brought richard nixon down because he got himself really? into such a mess in that interview right. and it was clear that he was pretty guilty of some uh, some nefarious acts And so I went to work for David Frost on this television program that was about the homes of the famous. And it was sort of part game show, part chat show. People would have to try and work out who lived at this particular property. And then whether they guessed or not was really irrelevant. But the famous person would then come on to the show and it would turn into a little chat show. Hmm. And so we had extraordinary people on the program from Donald Trump at one end to famous Olympic sportsmen at the other end to great political leaders Mm -hmm. to international businessmen and, and beyond. So I spent a long time working on that particular program and eventually worked from the bottom to the top. I think part of that was through sheer industry, just working really hard, putting the hours in, never taking no for an answer putting quite a lot of charm into what I did, but always knowing that I had an end goal, which was to create a television programme that would have up to 80 staff working on it at any one time, and I had to bring them all together to create this uh, terrific piece of television. And in fact, it's been on television in Britain now for 35 years, which is remarkable in itself. But that was where I became a leader. That was where I knew that people relied on me very heavily, as opposed to me rather relying on my own wits. I knew that I was bringing a team behind me, and I had to rely on other people And that's a great lesson to learn. Because you can't do everything. But in understanding that, you understand that you have to bring people on your journey. Because if you don't do that, you're not going to get to where you want to go to. You can't bully people into achieving something. And so I think I went quite a long way on hard work and charm to get the right result at the end.
2: What an interesting uh, path and journey that you followed, but I'm a big proponent of uh, women in leadership. I saw that very early with my mother, raising seven of us. Indeed. And uh, I think women have some very unique skills. But... Take us back a little bit to that journey of selling advertising space (laughs) as a woman to probably a male-dominated industry.
1: It was very male-dominated. You're right in that. Actually, on the sales floor, it was probably 50-50, male-female, but most of our customers were men. And we were very disciplined in how it was run in that we had to make what they called 18 effective phone calls every day. So it was phone bashing uh, in the true sense of, you know, put the phone down, pick it up again, try the next person, try the next person. But the 18 phone calls had to be through to the people who made the decisions, not through to the executive assistant or to the assistant manager. It had to be the person who was going to sign off the budget, because the decision-maker... And that taught me resilience because even getting those people on the phone was a bit of an art form. Getting them to come out for a lunch, because there were quite a lot of lunches in those days. Mm-hmm. So we, we had a healthy budget to invite people for lunch. And so getting marketing directors to either come into London or to give me an hour of their day so that I could wax lyrical about our wonderful magazines was a challenge. I think I rose to that challenge. And it worked but we all knew we were a team together. We were a lot of young graduates. They picked us all out of pretty good universities. Mm. And we were all on the journey together. And that was tremendously good fun because it was the first time I'd ever worked in an office. Right. And that's, you know, that that is different in itself. I'd been a waitress for many years when I was at university. And um, I'd been a sales floor assistant at Selfridges, a very big department store mm. in London, through all my university years but I'd never really worked in an office prior to the age of 22 and that teaches you something about teamwork and not rubbing up people the wrong way and getting great group enjoyment out of what you're all doing and group achievement is not to be underestimated. I think group achievement actually is more fun than personal achievement because you're sharing it with other people and it more than doubles the excitement of personal achievement.
2: It's uh, fascinating to hear you share that. And, you know, for all the young women millennial leaders who aspire to be in in careers like yours or other careers, what are some of the nuggets of wisdom that you would share as a... leader but also as a woman uh, that you could impart as knowledge to them based on your own journey?
1: I've always wanted to think the fact that I was a woman was irrelevant because i as as my sisters and I were not treated differently mm-hmm. from my brothers we all were sent to boarding school it was a bit of a struggle for mum and dad to find the money to send us all to boarding school and in some families, middle class families in those times the boys would be sent to boarding school and the girls would stay at home and they would go to local schools where the education probably wasn't as good as what the boys were receiving at boarding schools. So my parents didn't treat us any differently, and they didn't have lesser expectations for their daughters than they did for their sons. And when I worked my way up the ladder, I didn't want people to make allowances for me because I was a woman. I mean, a couple of examples. I mean, I didn't take time off when my children were born. When my eldest son, Theo, who is now 26, he was born at about 3 o'clock in the morning, but I knew the day before that I was in labour. And I also knew that I had to do three radio interviews at 9 o'clock the following morning to help launch the television programme that I'd just completed to get the word out, to try and get the audience there for the Friday night. And at nine o'clock in the morning, I went off and I did the three radio interviews. And then the press officer from ITV phoned the three journalists and said, you won't hear from Chantal today. She had a baby in the middle of the night. And they said, she didn't mention that when she phoned at nine o'clock this morning. (laughs) So I had just carried on as if the job had to get done. Yes, I had a gorgeous little baby who was six hours old in the bed next to me, but I knew that I had to do those radio interviews because it was important for the sec- success of the TV show. And similarly with my second child, I finished a board meeting at six o'clock in the evening. Mm. I went home, I made supper for the family, and my husband and I drove to the hospital at 10.30 when I realized I was in labor. And it was a pretty busy day one way and another. And I took no time off for maternity leave. Now, looking back on that, I think that was a ridiculous idea because I think I shortchanged myself a little. I think maternity leave and paternity leave is incredibly important. But at that stage, I was really quite driven. Money was a little tighter coming into the household. And I felt that I had to keep my foot on the gas to be able to help pay for nannies and au pairs and all those good things. And I think I, I think I was pretty hard on myself, to be honest. But I knew that I was achieving what I needed to achieve at work. And I think in retrospect, what I have given my children is that sense of industry. They have seen me work my tush off for all of their lives. Mm. And they won't ever forget that. That will have an impact on their careers. Mm-hmm. And for that, I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. I think. I was laying down good bricks and mortar for them Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of knowing that if you put your heart and mind into something and you put time and effort into it, that you would get the results that you wanted.
2: Well, you know, it's it's interesting to hear you say that that actually it started with mom and dad actually treating uh, all siblings equally. Yeah. Male or female, right and uh, I think the word equality unfortunately is, uh, brings up wrong connotations these days with so many different things going on. But hearing you talk about how you approach leadership, I think is extremely valuable for our audience, especially women leaders who want to want to be leaders but not want to be treated differently or be given concessions based on the fact exactly like you said, that they're women. I saw it a lot in my own career, uh, Chantal. And, you know, bringing women in to leadership positions, I think, creates an incredible balance, whether it's in a boardroom or whether it's in a business unit, because I think it actually allows men to learn from women if they're willing to, you know. And I think a lot of men, unfortunately, you know, think they know it all. You know, most most of us are, are driven that way, right? But hearing you talk about how you sort of approach that whole leadership to say, look, I saw it very early in my own family. I'm going to practice what I believe. I don't need to be treated differently. And I think that's a great learning for the for the ones looking to be uh, in your shoes and your type of role going forward. So what are some of the, you know, you, you, you shared a little bit about some of the values that you picked up very early on that I know you practiced today in your role. Uh, you talked about generosity. You talked about giving back clearly uh, that's what you're doing today in your current role but uh, take us through the rest of that journey of we were talking a little bit about how you ended up in this incredibly great uh, environment with sir david frost what a brilliant mind and and a brilliant person for his time Fast forward through that journey for us a little bit and...
1: he was an inspiration too he was a he was a natural leader and it was wonderful to to be in his wake he had friends who were presidents, but he came from an ordinary background and he often talked about his ordinary ordinary background he was the son of a minister and he was wildly generous with his time and the care that he took with the people around him. He made everybody feel special. And that, I think, was natural to him. Mm. I think other people can learn that skill. I think David had it in spades. I think he just simply grew up with it. He made people around him feel better Mm. for having spent some time with them. I mean, I think what he would say, what I think that possibly one of the things I learned from him was about finding things that are symbiotic, not parasitic. Finding a way that you can create something wonderful for lots of people and not at the expense of others. He wasn't somebody who trod on top of other people to get where he got to. Uh, And I think that experience that I had of working for him really made me watch closely at how you could work with kings and criminals mm. and treat them equally and be kind to other human beings actually. The boss I had before him was a man called Theo Cowan who also had a remarkable effect on me and he taught me about perspective. So I'm going to take you through a little role play here and for anybody who's listening to us we're sitting here with a couple of microphones in front of us so I'm going to say to you sit here. imagine that you have a a problem and the problem at the moment is represented by the microphone that's in front of you so if you look at that microphone you're you're studying that microphone it's occupying all your thoughts it's occupying what's going into your eyes and it's troubling you whatever that thing is it's troubling you but actually probably what you've lost on that problem is you've lost perspective mm-hmm. so if you had a sheet of paper If you held that in front of your eyes, your perspective would be so close to you that you would have blotted everything out. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you move that paper away from you in front of the microphone, you can now see everything else that's around you. The microphone, which is your problem, is still the same size. Mm -hmm. It hasn't gone away, but you've managed to incorporate everything else in the room. The view that we've got of Wilshire Boulevard here in Los Angeles the view through my boardroom windows out to the corridor and my staff walking past, the view in the rest of our boardroom that we're sitting in. Mm. Your problem is still the same size, but what you've done is you've created perspective around it mm. and you've put context around it mm. so that you can tackle it better. And I think that that is what I learned from Theo Cowan, was about perspective and never letting the problem in front of you cloud Everything in your day. So if you move your perspective away, still the same size problem, but you've got more weapons to tackle it with
2: fascinating insight actually you know and it's uh, there's a lot of uh, leadership cliche statements people use to explain it but the way you've explained it i think is uh, is very insightful to to really keep that perspective and it's very interesting it's not just a leadership requirement it's almost a daily requirement for all of us as we face personal and indeed professional challenges in our life in our life journey every
1: day I think that's where collaboration comes in, because you hear other voices. They add to your thinking, mm-hmm. and often they sharpen your thinking. And I'm certainly not so arrogant to think that my, it's my way or the highway, that right. every decision I make is the right one. I try to consider everything, mm-hmm. and I try to take lots of opinions, and I try to bring everybody with me. And hopefully we come up with the right answer more often than not.
2: Very interesting, you know, and uh, I, I really appreciate you sharing some of these wonderful insights as you've sort of gone through life That's and leadership, you know. And of course, leadership brings its own challenges in many different ways, and uh, it brings tremendous learning for all of us, right? So I have to
1: ask you this question.
2: What are some of the things you learned not to do as a leader?
1: No shouting. Shouting's bad. It doesn't get you anywhere at all. Negativity is... Corrosive. Wasting time is pointless. I haven't tackled that one a hundred percent. I have to tell you, there are parts of my day where I definitely waste time, and I shouldn't. And I know that when I tackle something quickly, I feel much better about it than I if I leave it to fester. So I'm working on that one, Sudia. <laughs> but I would, if I was to pass any advice on to somebody, it would be to tackle problems as they arise. Mm-hmm. Not to leave them to fester. Because otherwise I think you can look indecisive. Mm -hmm. And there may be times when you have to leave something well alone. But I think that's where you explain why you are not tackling the problem there and then. But generally I think expediting a resolution is, is better than letting things hang around being problematic for a long time. So yes, no shouting, no prevarication, no negativity. I don't think I'm wasteful. I think I've learned not to be wasteful. Life is precious. We know that we're not here for long. And every moment has to be looked after. And faffing about, as my mother or father would (laughs) call it, faffing about is, it's a bit pointless. It is a waste of time and wastefulness. Now we understand the true meaning of wastefulness for the planet. But wastefulness of time is also something that... I think it's not acceptable.
2: Very uh, grateful to you sharing those insights again, you know. Of course, you've been very successful in your leadership journey through all these various uh, incredible experiences you've had. But how would you define success if you had to, uh, as a leader today, both
1: commercial personally and professional. Commercial success or personal success? Yeah. I think personal success is, I'm going to leave that behind in my 26-year-old and my 22-year-old that they will be my signs of success. If they succeed, I will have succeeded. And that's not to say that they have to be ambitious and they have to be driven. I think if they're happy and they've got the right values and I've managed to to pass on some of my values to them, Mm. that will be the degree of personal success that will be perfect. Professional success is ephemeral in a way. It comes and it goes. Days are different. I will happily look look back on... the good days and the bad days in my career, I think. But I would like to think that I've taught a few people how to succeed themselves. And that in itself is a success. I've always encouraged young people. I've always tried to help them think that they could be better than they think they are. Mm. I've tried to give people confidence. I've always employed people with diversity in my uppermost thoughts. That I'm pretty proud of mm-hmm. I, I feel I've brought some really good storytellers to the fore and some really good people who've who've really added to the wellness of the world mm-hmm. and I think here at BAFTA which actually has been my first full-time role uh, working in a non-profit that I feel as though giving back has become massively important to me but more obviously to other people I think I was doing it before, Mm -hmm. but I think now that I'm doing it for a non-profit, it's become more obvious Mm -hmm. that I have a a level of altruism in my life that I want to expand upon. And I hope that that creates its own success for others Mm -hmm. and for making the world a better place. Mm -hmm. The world is very unfair. And I think if we can try and create a better, more level playing field, that any of us who do it in any small way will have found their own ultimate success, Mm. both professionally and personally.
2: What an incredible uh, base of insights and uh, learnings that you're sharing with our audience. We could keep keep going, and <laughs> I, I absolutely want to. And I'm sure we'll have to do a few more recordings in the future. I, w-
1: I would love to.
2: Let me ask a few more questions as we continue this dialogue. And uh, the question I have for you is, you know, we always have to end our day every day and look ourselves in the mirror. And uh, how do you know that you've done right at the end of the day, when uh, when you look at yourself in the mirror, and as Gosh, you say, some up. days are challenging, some days are up, some days are down. You know. So, how
1: do you define that? That is really tough. <laughs> I mean, looking at the end of one's life is is quite a tough place to look at, anyway. Just as an aside, I, I had a bad year about ten years ago. Mm. I lost my mother, my brother, my uncle, my aunt my cousin, and both next-door neighbours in one year. And I felt as though I was always at a funeral. And it was tricky. And I thought, and I learned, actually, an enormous amount about the end of one's life, about how people should prepare for it, Mm -hmm. how they should resolve their issues, Mm -hmm. but also, most importantly, about how they should not leave a mess for other people. And I realised that when my mother died, being one of six children, three of the children wanted a Catholic service and three of the children wanted a Protestant service. Mm. We wanted different food at the wake. We wanted different prayers said. We wanted different hymns. Mm -hmm. And it became a time of conflict when actually it should have been a time of quiet. And I at the time felt that I wanted to create a sort of website that would be somewhere, a repository, if you like, of information for people who were either coming to the end of their life or for people who had people leaving their lives so that they could prepare for this moment and make sure that they had their house in order. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's the kindness that you can pass on to those that you leave behind. Mm -hmm. And I think it allows you to leave the planet feeling calmer and feeling as though you've done the right thing. And that will ease the rite of passage, I am sure. So I would like to feel that I don't leave a mess behind for my children, Mm -hmm. that I don't leave a professional mess for anybody to pick up if it were to happen whilst I was still working. Whether I've still got a big career or not, I'm sure I will still be trustee of a charity until my dying day and I will still be you know helping out charity shops and trying to raise money for other charities and I'm sure it'll be somebody that something that will stay with me forever but uh, I think that that generosity will go with me to the end of my day I hope and will be appreciated by others.
2: Very, uh, very interesting you say that, you know, and we talk a little bit about adverse circumstances and adversity. And uh, as much as you've had such incredible success, allow me to take you back a little bit to those moments of adversity. And all of us learn incredible amounts of, in a very short time, learn a lot if we're willing to expose ourselves to that learning during the time of adversity. If you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit, of those adverse moments and the time where you had to deal with so much of various forms of adversity, if you will, and the emotions associated with it.
1: Indeed. I think I was lucky to be born with a positive mental attitude, and I'm lucky. But not everybody is cheerful. I got the cheerful gene. (laughs) My father suffered from depression, um, really from my teenage years onwards. And That was hard. It was hard on my mother. It was hard on my siblings. He was difficult to live with. And that probably made me less confident, made me less sure of who I was. Mm -hmm. But it also made me understand that not everybody was strong, Mm -hmm. that not everybody coped terribly well with life. But I think everybody tried to support dad and so that allowed us to to get something out of something that actually was pretty pretty sad at the time to get something out of it which was about us all working together to try and to make his life better in some ways mm-hmm. i mean ultimately it's that didn't quite work out mm-hmm. for us as children but it made us resilient and i know that in your own childhood you had times where mm-hmm. money was tough yeah. Not everything was great all the time. I know you came from a loving family too, but I think it created the person that you are and you have learned resilience and your own career has been spectacular. And I think that that probably started in your home with your mum and dad as well. So I think that adversity is not to be ignored and I think if you can try and get something positive out of it, that's the best way to tackle it. Again, when my brother died, and, and not that long after my sister died, that knocked us all again as a family, and it seemed incredibly unkind and unfair for two relatively young people to, to lose their lives to ill health. But it was what it was, and we all picked ourselves up. We supported each other in an extraordinary way. I love my siblings massively and always will do and I will carry that to the end of my dying day. I think adversity is a hill to be climbed, and it's around every corner. I'm mixing metaphors, but we're all going to encompass it. It's there for us all to make the best of, not the worst of. And, you know, I know
2: uh, your brother was uh, not just an incredible influence in the lives of many. Uh, share was. it for us a little bit about he his was... his life and, uh, and his invention and-
1: well, he was a pretty clever bloke. I think he's a bit like you, to be honest. <laughs> he was a technologist, but he started out life as a, as a doctor. Uh, he became a consultant cardiologist. He got to the very top of his profession. But in the 1960s, he'd also taught himself computer science, mm. which you didn't need as a medic. And computer science, as you know, was very, very new. Very Yeah. And he would go on a Saturday and Sunday when he had time off from being a medical student to a local school of technology where he was allowed to play with the computers at the weekend. So he basically was a self-taught technologist, but he was a consultant cardiologist. So he dealt really in the mechanics of the business of the heart and... The early original pacemakers were just like an old-fashioned watch or a clock. They would beat at 70 Mm -hmm. and they would just help keep your heart pumping at an incredibly regular rate. And they didn't allow for you wanting to run upstairs and they didn't allow for you wanting to sleep. What he managed to do, which was a world first, he was a world pioneer, Mm -hmm. he created the first in effect, on-demand pacemaker, so that if you wanted your heart to pump more, the microprocessor understood the signals from the body and made the heart pump faster if you wanted to run upstairs. And it also understood when you were resting, you no longer needed your heart to be pumping as quickly as an old-fashioned clock would have done. And so that was marrying... One of the pure new sciences with one of the older mechanical sciences. And he improved and saved many millions of lives. And sadly, he's not still here being a pioneer, but he left a legacy behind that I am incredibly proud of.
2: Well, you know, it's uh, people just forget that actually pacemakers these days are, become so common. Yeah. You know, those of us who have these challenges, you know, I was at Stanford recently uh, having to deal with this and uh, people forget and it's so, I'm so privileged to meet you and realize that your brother had such a significant influence in the lives of those of us who struggle with this because we do
1: every day. It's tough. Yeah. It's tough. Ill health is demanding in so many ways. Right. And he was somebody who very much believed in if he couldn't see all his pe- patients, that through telemedicine, he was going to make sure that he could, you know, plug his patients in from their seat at home and attach the suckers to their chest so that he could read what was, uh, going, on? What was going on just from sitting at home at his own kitchen table and then being able to offer advice. He was really a man way ahead of his time. He was. He absolutely was. He was ahead of his time.
2: Things have really changed so significantly, and I'm sure he would have enjoyed seeing all those inventions today. Indeed. You know, so. Indeed. But it's, uh, it's again, it's what a journey you've had of life. Obviously, you have to wind down. Uh, and I have a few more questions for you, but uh, as we come to the tail end of this uh, this uh, show and recording, I have to ask you, uh, first of all, I'm sure you do a lot of reading, so what, uh, what are some of the books that you would share with the audience that you've most wow. recently read? Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, well, I tell you, the last book I read, and you won't be surprised when I tell you it's a medical book, <laughs> it was written by a guy called Adam Kay, mm-hmm. who was a, a um, senior registrar in obstetrics in a london teaching hospital and for 15 years he worked for the nhs and he wrote a diary about patients that came to see him wow he's now a comedy script writer so he sort of jumped from the world i wanted to be in as a as a medic to the world that i'm now in which is right. the world of storytelling and ultimately it's quite a sad story because his medical career came to an end and i would encourage listeners to go and read the book because it's very funny It is part love letter to the National Health Series, but it's part Dear John. I don't know if if the phrase, the Dear John letter, works for you, but it's his goodbye from the NHS and for the reasons that he left. And ultimately, he felt very disappointed by the National Health Service. But the stories are stories of people and of great medical interventions that help them, but written in a very funny way so that you feel positive. You don't feel depressed by his storytelling at the end. And you feel that, actually, if we could encourage everybody to put more behind the National Health Service rather than less, that would be a good thing. So that is the last thing I wrote, and he is now writing for television. And uh, I think there is a TV series of that book being made at the moment, so I will watch that. And then the book I have just started is another book by... A brain surgeon who has written a more erudite work in a way. Again, he is a wonderful man who was a brain surgeon in um, in obviously um, in the United Kingdom uh, in another London teaching hospital. But the way he writes about his profession is so beautiful. He's a wonderful wordsmith, and it's not written for professionals. It's written for for people like you and i who have an interest in health and uh i would urge anybody to go out and get that book and maybe we'll put a little note up on the website um on cracking the code at the end and and put those recommendations there in case anybody would like to follow up on them
2: absolutely in fact most of our audience they very diligently go and pick up these books so i appreciate you sharing your insights into them clearly you're the ceo of bafta share with us a little bit about what that vision is that you have and how you you're trying to make a difference in the lives of people not just here in LA but around the
1: world. BAFTA is as you know it's an arts education organization it is a not-for-profit organization we are global our head office is obviously London we have had an office here in Los Angeles for 32 years most importantly when we arrived as Brits in Hollywood and Brits have always traveled well, and we traveled pretty well to Hollywood, whether it was Cary Grant or Alfred Hitchcock or, you know, some great, great British stars have had fabulous careers in Hollywood. But we particularly felt that we, because we were foreigners in a foreign land, Mm. that we should give something back to the community that had adopted us. And the Americans have treated us very kindly, and they've... You know, they give us the odd Oscar occasionally. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, um, we can't say that we've had a bad time here. We've all had successful careers in film and television and games. So what we do locally is we do about 1,000 hours of community and education work in some of the most underserved schools in Los Angeles. Mm. South Central Los Angeles is, is tough. And we go down and we do after-schools education, which is all about showing these young people about how to get careers in film, television or games. So we don't just go down and show them a film. We'll show them the credit list on the film first, Mm. sort of playing it backwards. And we'll say, you could be any one of these 15,000 people. So we ignite their sort of creative flame and help them with scholarships to get into local universities and beyond, try and find them internships in the business here, as well as looking after this underserved community, which we particularly feel need to be brought up because diversity levels need to change. And though that community is 98% non-white, uh, which is why we focus so heavily on it to help change the balance of, of of ethnicity within our industry. But we also bring in British students from the homeland and give them scholarships to be educated in the film schools in America. We also look after about 40 international people who arrive in Hollywood from all over the world each year. And these are young people who are at the beginning of their professional careers. And we put a a BAFTA blanket around them and we make introductions for them. We invite them to lectures. We invite them to all of our events so that we can offer an international standard of excellence around the art forms of the moving image. So we now have an office in Shanghai, we hope to soon have an office in Mumbai, and we want to propel the excellence of BAFTA around the world. Mm -hmm. But with this very good, ethical, educational core at -hmm. its heart, which is about bringing on the next generation of storytellers, who in their turn will give something back to the generation beyond and help through storytelling make the world a better place. Mm. Stories climb walls. Stories dig tunnels. Mm. No wall can keep a story out. And I think if we can do anything to help make the world a better place, it is to encourage storytelling from here and far mm. and for that to, to help us find a happier way through troubled times.
2: What an incredible paid forward uh, mission that you're uh, you're really leading here. And I'm sure it's impacting lives uh, all over the world. I'm privileged to, to just know a little bit about it. And I hope that we'll have many more opportunities for the audience to learn more about what you're doing. It's clear that, that your, your, uh, your early childhood journey of generosity for mom and dad, giving back, is coming full circle into what you're doing now for uh, for BAFTA. As we close this, I have one last question for you. This is one that I think uh, all of us always reflect as we we get older. How do you want people to remember Chantal My
1: With a smile. <laughs> I think if they can remember my cheerfulness and have a smile on their face when they remember me, that will be job done
2: fantastic and uh, i mean that says a lot about you with everything you've gone through you know you've uh, you've had a very uh, positive spirit from what you've shared the best way one can remember another thank you Chantal, for joining us on cracking the code again i appreciate your time appreciate your insights and thank you for
0: uh, for sharing your life journey
1: it's been an immense pleasure Sudhir. thank you
0: Sadir, we've just heard perhaps the most dramatic example of a determined leader. Someone so dedicated to the success of a project, she gave birth to her first child at 3 a.m. Six hours later, she did several radio interviews to promote the television show. You, sir, are one of the hardest working people I know, but I'm certain you've never done that. Chantal Ricards says she did it again when her second child was born that is determination. She credits a combination of hard work and charm for her success, and it showed in this podcast. It was that combination that took her from rural beginnings to the demanding world of British television. One major stepping stone that prepared her way, advertising sales, making 18 good sales calls each and every day. I've done that too early in my career, And Ricard's is right on the mark when she says that sales experience will prepare you for anything later in your career. And Sudhir, I hope you do another hour with her because I would like to hear more about the inside stories of working with Sir David Frost, the legendary British broadcaster.